Trump has been bounced off the ballot in Colorado. Meanwhile, pointing out that he sounds a lot like Hitler is becoming more mainstream, which seems like a big change. We should talk about how this is going to play out in regular conversations with regular people that you want to persuade. Giuliani keeps doubling down on his lies. If you're a liberal man watching this, Ted Cruz thinks your wife is angry and he says you're the reason because apparently you're very bad at sex. We'll give this criticism the exact level of seriousness it deserves, which is probably none. Trump is now turning his attack machine on Nikki Haley, and Nikki Haley is responding by praising Trump. Bold strategy. Ron DeSantis' original campaign strategy is turning out to be original because it was a bad idea. And I have a grab and oar about trying to unseat one of the biggest tools in the U.S. Senate. Welcome back to the podcast for the 54% of Americans who vote for progress in every election and want to convince their conservative friends and family members to join our majority. This is Majority 54. Well, Jason, let me read for you Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So this is what it says. It says, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or any state who, having previously taken the oath of office as a member of Congress or an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a two-thirds vote of each house, remove such disability. End quote. So this is the provision that everybody's talking about now because the Colorado Supreme Court said the following, quote, President Trump incited and encouraged the use of violence and lawless action to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. And in a four to three ruling, they booted him from the primary ballot, which we can all assume means he will be booted from the general election ballot. This will go to the Supreme Court because it is a state court interpreting federal law. We can do a little procedure if we want. Uh, but this is a big deal. Everybody's talking about it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of everybody talking about it, let's go to uh, the first, let's go to the supercut we have of this where we have a former judge talking about it, followed by Biden. Uh, and then we got another clip we want to look at too. So let's start right there. The, the individual justices of, of the Colorado Supreme Court brought honor to their court and as well to the state and federal judiciaries uh, with their opinion tonight in this historic case. This is case. Michael Ludwig, former uh, the, the Colorado court Supreme Court judge. Meticulously and methodically addressed seriatim the many state issues and federal constitutional issues that were involved in the case. They marshaled the support for each and every one of their decisions of state law and federal constitutional law uh, as well as any judge could do. Uh, their opinion is unassailable. Uh, under the objective law of the federal constitution and sec section three of the 14th amendment, uh, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, ought to affirm this decision today. self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. There's no question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. Anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, for those who couldn't really hear the audio, plus let me correct. So I, I had said that he was a former judge of the Colorado Supreme Court. No, he's commenting on the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, he is a former judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Um, and he's then not just any I, judge, by the way, on the Fourth Circuit. You might you might not remember this, but when Roberts was confirmed, 
George W. Bush floated Ludig, the judge that we just saw, and mm. he was viewed as the most conservative choice. Like he was viewed as like another Scalia. So he did not. Oh wow! You know, he didn't pass the sort of the the court of public opinion test. He was viewed as the most extreme of the judges. Uh, that's how far we've come. Okay, uh, that is very helpful. Uh, and then the Biden clip was they were asking Biden if he uh, what he thought about the court decision. He was like, "I'm not going to comment on it." Clearly, Biden did want to say something because then when they ask him uh, if Trump is an insurrectionist, he walks all the way over to where the mics are, asks them to repeat the question, and then he's like, "Yeah, it's self evident. <laughs> he's an insurrectionist." Um, so bef- there, there's another clip we're going to look at in a second. But Robbie, my sense on on this is one. I have two thoughts. One, you want to try to stop Trump at every opportunity. Two, as far as the law goes, I just feel like it's a situation where your initial instinct might be, well, I don't know, can we do that? Which is, which is sort of our, our regular subscription to norms as, uh, as Democrats in this country, I think as a bias to like, well, can we just remove him from the ballot? But you started by reading the relevant section of the Constitution, and not only is it pretty clear, that someone who is engaged in insurrection can't stand for office, can't hold office anyway. Um, when you when you actually listen to it, you think, well, that is an entirely reasonable policy <laughs> that someone who tried to overthrow the government doesn't get to be a part of the government. Well, and and as it's clear from which amendment it is, these are reconstruction amendments. So the context is really interesting. Mm-hmm. This is oh, post-Civil War. This is people who... Uh, engaged in uh, the Confederacy, a a rebellion against the United States. That's the genesis of all this. And there is, there's the politics of it all. And then there's the law about it. So why don't we do the law first, and then we can go to the politics. And there's an interesting argument that David Frum had on the politics, but we'll hold that for a second and just shut the door on the legal argument. Because I spent the morning just trying to figure this out. Because my initial instinct was to say, this doesn't seem right. be, you know, we should play it. We should let this play out in the court of public opinion. And then I started looking at the law, and it actually is the the, the rationale of the Colorado Supreme Court legally is pretty strong. And no less a, a, a legal scholar than Will Bode, who I I went to law school with. I wasn't close with him or anything, but he was known as kind of the smartest conservative in my law school at the time. He's now a professor at the University of Chicago and known as a conservative professor, but one who's very independent-minded. He he was he did a debate at the Federal Society convening a couple months ago where he laid out the argument as to why this is legal. And he particularly took on this argument that the dissent in the Colorado case had, but also people who um inevitably this is going to show up in briefings before the Supreme Court, they they argue, well, this this provision of the 14th Amendment is not self-executing, is their argument, meaning we need an act of Congress or some other act in order to, uh, to bring meaning to this law, and a, and a court can't just apply it on its own. And he takes aim at that argument, uh, among others, in this debate. Let's go to this clip. We know that it works this way, for sure, by comparing it with other parts of the Reconstruction Amendments. For instance, the 13th Amendment, which bans, which says slavery and involuntary servitude shall not exist, was an immediately self-executing legal rule. When it was enacted, slaves were immediately entitled to their freedom. Other parts of the 14th Amendment, no state shall uh, deny due process, equal protection, and so on, immediately gave people new legal rights against the states. Section 3 works the same way. And we know this for extra sure, because Section 3 after the long clause about no person shall, has a clause that refers to Congress and says Congress can lift this restriction by a two-thirds vote. So the one time that Congress needs to act to activate this, to act under this provision is to deactivate the provision, not to activate it. That is, immediately upon uh, insurrection or rebellion, anybody who's covered by this clause cannot hold office. And if Congress wants to change that, they can do so, but they're the ones who have to act. There is a case by Chief Justice Chase, not a Supreme Court case, but a a case sort of of no real presidential value now called Griffin's case that says otherwise and is wrong. Uh, We're happy to talk about it more, but I think it's wrong. This is pretty straightforward. The harder question is, so to say the clause is self-executing doesn't mean that it's self-enforcing. The 14th Amendment is not itself, you know, walking around the ballroom or the halls of any state, Secretary of State, scrubbing people off the ballot or stopping them from getting into office. And so then he goes on and makes the argument for the fact that it 
uh, it is self-enforcing in the sense that there are other provisions of the Constitution and the 14th Amendment around qualifications for office, like um, you know, basically every qualification you have, whether it's citizenship and being born in the country and yada, 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 that have the same structure and are enforced in the exact same way that the Colorado court is seeking to enforce this, right? So that the courts are the actual proper uh, actors to say this person's qualified or not. Just like if uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger were decided to run for president, he's not born in this country, the individual courts, whether it's the courts of the states or the Supreme Court of the United States, would be a valid venue to decide whether he met the qualification or not, just like this Colorado court and eventually the Supreme Court is a valid venue for deciding whether Trump ran afoul of the insurrection clause. All that to say is this actually legally is a stronger case than I thought on the surface. Now, this is a political Supreme Court, so whether it's legally strong or not might not have any bearing here. Well, that brings us to the next clip. The uh, is it David from or Michael from? I can't remember. Yeah, from, from yeah from. He argues that this is not just about the general election, but about the primary. So let's go to that clip. One reason I was so worried about it was I thought this case would probably arise in the summer when it would be Trump versus Biden. But it's arising at the end of the 2023 when it's not Trump versus Biden, it's Trump versus Haley, Trump versus DeSantis. So if this the Supreme Court says, you know what, they're right in Colorado, Trump is an insurrectionist, the candidates they are boosting are not Democrats. The candidates they are boosting are fellow Republicans. If only the Republicans will accept the lifeline, the courts could throw them. I mean, that's a great point. Like he's he's basically saying, look, we know what a bunch of hacks the majority on the Supreme Court are. And we know that if this is, you know, the summer of 2024, they're going to just say, well, the Republican presidential candidate gets to stay on the ballot. But because they're a bunch of party hacks before they are a bunch of Trump hacks, if they have the opportunity to throw Trump off the ballot in the primary, then they have the opportunity to do what. 95% of Republican elected officials in the country are praying someone will do, which is clear Trump out of the way so that they can get a not Trump nominee uh, for the presidency. And he's saying this is their opportunity to do it. And it makes me think that they might do it. He also, in the rest of that interview, makes the point that for that to happen, people like Haley and DeSantis have to specifically call on them to do it because they have to give them the permission slip and sort of create the context in which that could actually happen. Yeah. And I'm not holding my breath on that. I haven't seen, I mean, my assumption is they're all defending Trump. Is that right? I, that's my, yeah. my assumption on this. Yeah. I haven't seen them um, comment specific. I'm sure that they have commented on the case and I'm sure if they had said anything other than that, it would have been news. Um, I don't know what Christie has said. Probably. I mean, to the extent he's commented on it, he's probably, uh, so, oh, uh, Salty says that Vivek threatened to pull out of the Colorado primary. You know, way to stand up for yourself, Vivek. Uh, you know, the, the, it's like I'm so upset that my insurrectionist opponent is not allowed to be on the ballot that I will not compete. Like, okay, I guess easy to say when you're at like one percent. Yeah, the, the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in on this, and I think it'll be interesting whether they decide to take up the issue that we had mentioned either last week or the week before around Trump's immunity as well, what, what Jack Smith has asked them to take it up, because it would seem odd for them to rush to answer this question and ignore Jack Smith's question, right? Mm -hmm. So my hope is that they commingle, they, they, they decide that they take both up, because that would, I think, appear less partisan. Now, they could decide in Trump's favor on both of these, which I think is a very possible outcome, but at least we would know the answer. Yeah. Which I think they'll clarify. Uh, okay. So for our listeners, the way this is going to come up is Trump is going to, he's going to get a ton of I'm the victim mileage out of this. That's what he does. He's going to look, they're coming after me. They won't even let me appear on the ballot. They're trying to rig the system. This is the Biden you know, world in which uh, they're stealing the election beforehand. So this is going to come up with your, particularly with your conservative family over the holidays. And I think what you've got to do is to the extent you want to talk about the substance of it, I think you got to, Talk about what Ravi just talked about and talk about the law. Like, feel free to bring a pocket constitution with you. Uh, and, you know, and just make the point of like, 
this this was it's pretty plain law. They're not actually being activists. They are just applying the original intent of this part of the Constitution of this amendment. Um, but then, as always, you need to work past that and be like, hey, look, it's I think you can say, look, in all likelihood, he's going to be on the ballot. So if you want to talk about this, why don't we talk about what it is he wants to do versus what Biden wants to do? Like always pivot back to that because you're on stronger ground. Yeah. Another argument that you hear is like, just we're afraid of democracy. That's what I'm seeing from the right. Yeah. Like you don't want to, you're afraid of the will of the people. And I think that the easiest thing to talk about is like, is to talk about, well, are we just saying that he, there's just no limit to what he could do? Like you certainly don't seem to apply that logic to Biden who they're, trying to drag through impeachment and discredit at every possible you know level and i think i think the factual question is what did, it did trump like did he engage in insurrection or not that's where this should be both in, from a political perspective and a legal perspective that's the question to ask and it's interesting to me that the members of the right don't seem to be arguing otherwise they're arguing to ignore the law they're not arguing that he didn't engage in insurrection so with that jason let's actually take a break and when we come back there is a lot on our plate, but most immediately, we've got to react to this mega judgment against uh, Rudy Giuliani because uh, I, I don't know if I've seen a, a, a judgment that involves our politics involving any number even close to that. You're the trial lawyer. You may know one bigger than that other than maybe the Dominion case. This might yeah, even Dominion. be bigger than that. Uh, but okay, uh, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time with as possible, is so important. We could all benefit from heart-healthy energy. One of the best ways to get some, by supporting your blood pressure and your circulation. I'm 42 now. These are the kind of things that I think about now. Superbeats Heart Chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure. They're plant-based and they're stimulant-free, so you get a green boost without the jitters. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Superbeats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. Superbeats Heart Chews are incredibly delicious. Seriously, they taste, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say the brand name they taste like, but that's what they taste like. Uh, it's a good brand name. It's something you grew up with. It's so much better than any alternative supplements out there. I take my Superbeats Heart Chews each morning and it's really kickstarted my morning routine. After taking my Superbeats Heart Chews, I feel like I have more energy. I'm ready to take on the day. It's the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist, most importantly, recommended beat brand for cardiovascular health support. It's blood pressure support you can trust. Superbeats Heart Chews support healthy circulation, circulation, so you not only get blood pressure support, you also get productive heart-healthy energy without the crash. Double your potential, that sounds pretty good, with Superbeats Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews and 15% off your first order by going to getsuperbeats.com and using promo code Majority. That's get super beats, B E E T S dot com, code majority. If you're like my wife, Diana, morning coffee is non negotiable, but she was tired of waiting in line for an overpriced cup or settling for a gritty, bitter coffee at home. And now she switched to using AeroPress. And I don't think she's ever going back. It's so easy and convenient and incredibly unique. Uh, she said to me the other day, she was like, I didn't know we could do this at home. This is this is awesome. Saves her a bunch of time in the morning. AeroPress is like a French press, only it's better. It's the only press that uses a patented three-in-one brew technology, combining the best of several brew methods into one portable device for a completely unique and delicious flavor profile. Smooth, rich, and full-bodied without the bitterness and grit found in other presses. And as a bonus, AeroPress can brew thousands of recipes. AeroPress travels better than others too. It's compact and incredibly durable. That means that you'll never have to endure terrible coffee at the hotel, on the job, or on an adventure again. It brews and cleans in less than two minutes. You just add medium fine coffee grounds, pour in hot water, stir for five seconds, brew for 30 seconds. Then you press it into your favorite mug and enjoy. There's a reason why AeroPress is the barista's favorite home brewing tool. AeroPress is the best reviewed coffee press on the planet with more than 55,000 five-star reviews. Thoughtful, proven, and under 50 bucks, AeroPress is the perfect gift or stocking stuffer for every coffee lover in your life this holiday season. Don't settle for less than the best. They'll love it. AeroPress is shockingly affordable, less than 50 bucks, and we've got an incredible offer for our audience. Visit aeropress.com slash majority. That's A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S 
aeropress.com slash majority and save up to 20%. That's aeropress.com slash majority to save up to 20%. It's time to ditch the drive through toss the French press, and say yes to better mornings fueled by better coffee. Aeropress ships to the U.S. and over 60 countries around the world, and we thank Aeropress for sponsoring our show. Well, Jason, Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay more than $148 million to two women for false claims that they tampered with votes in 2020. These damages are uh, in three categories that you'll be very familiar with. One is defamation, one is emotional distress, one is punitive damages. And as background here, Giuliani admitted that his statements were false back in July. And in August, the court entered a default judgment against him, holding him liable for those falsehoods. The only question left for the jury was the amount of damages. And on Friday, they gave the answer. This is a shocking number. It's a huge number. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if we have the clip. Salty can tell us if we do. I, I remember seeing the one where it starts with him uh, saying what he was going to do when he testified, and then uh, and then what he actually said about why he didn't testify. Um, but if we don't, I'll just I'll just. Well, we have it. A, we have a different set of clips that maybe we we'll, can we can set you up. But oh, salty, he says he has it. So okay, let's let's do that one real quick, and then we'll Great. talk about it because it is enjoyable. And it will be definitively clear that what I said was true, and that whatever happened to them, which is. It's unfortunate if other people overreact. This is on December but everything 11th. everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to Sh- Of course Sanders? I don't regret. I told the truth. Yeah. I have no doubt that my comments were made and this they is were Friday. supportable and are supportable today. Still. I just did not have an opportunity to present the evidence that we offered. <laughs> so he's like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell everybody. Uh, I, I'm going to testify and everyone's going to see that everything I said was right. And then like it concludes and he's like, you know, after he decides not to testify, I just didn't get a chance. They didn't give me a chance. To, uh, so the evidence um, was uh, the evidence of the of the fraud uh, that Giuliani and Trump and everybody is claiming is basically um, they have a girlfriend in Canada and you don't know her. You've never met her. Um, but they talk about her a lot and she never materializes. It is mostly the same evidence that they have against Hunter Biden is, is, is also a girlfriend in Canada that they met at camp over the summer. Um, anyway, it is delightful, but yeah, $148 million. Um, look, I don't, does Rudy Giuliani, even before all his troubles, did he have $148 million? I know, it's funny. My, it. my friend is his lawyer and I don't know. It, it, I don't know what percentage of that he's getting, but it's a good day in his house. You know, one of the smartest lawyers I know. But yeah, he's I don't. Giuliani's lawyer? No, no, he's the lawyer for the plaintiffs. Oh uh, well, I mean, yeah. I have bad news for him. He's <laughs> kind of like great yeah. benefit in the rainmaker. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the slot machine that never pays out. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> well, it's weird. It is, I'm not the. It's not the first time I've said this, but. As somebody who grew up in New York City, I can't. I still can't get used to the version of Giuliani I see on TV. And he was a controversial figure while he was mayor, but he was a cogent person and a serious person mm-hmm. as mayor of New York City. And he is a mess. Like honestly, I mean, it's it's both. He both. He seems like he has a combination of extreme substance abuse problems, uh, some kind of cognitive decline and ethical decline all mixed into one toxic brew. I don't know. From the articles I've read, it seems like the ethical decline was not a steep one. Um, That perhaps, you know, perhaps, uh, well, he was serious. He was not necessarily ethical, right? Yeah. Um, But that said, uh, there's no question, you know, I saw somebody pointing out the other day that this is a guy who was set, man. I mean, like he was getting paid easily a hundred grand a speech. Uh, he was thought of as, a, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that he was like on the ma- the masked singer or whatever. Like he was a mainstream right. figure. He was the, even after running a couple times in the primary for president and, and losing, he was still considered. Yeah. I mean, Salty points out he was time person of the year. Like he was America's mayor after nine 11. That's who he was. And he, could have just stuck with that. And, and I guess the 
there's two things that are takeaways from all this for me. One is that it doesn't matter who you are, that anybody can get in, uh, sort of pulled in to that Fox News, Newsmax, Newsmax, you know, One Nation, whatever they call it, world, that, that cultish world that people's grandparents get pulled into when they watch Fox News all the time. They, you could be Rudy Giuliani. You could be living in New York City among people who don't feel that way and, and you know, running in pretty, in pretty fancy circles and still get pulled into that world. And then from this verdict, I think the thing to think about is that these two women, it's a, a mother and a daughter who were election workers who were basically anonymous before this, who Giuliani singled out and, and just pointed the ire of the MAGA movement at and said, these two people in Georgia stole the election. Um, it shouldn't be lost that that is probably, an, I mean, you talk about emotional distress, which they sued for. That is some well-earned emotional distress because there is no doubt that there were a lot of death threats against them, probably some that were quite credible. Um, the, the amount of online and in-person uh, harassment, I'm sure people showing up at their homes, showing up at their jobs, sending them things in the mail. I mean, good Lord, let alone social media. I can just tell you as somebody who, you know, I have, I barely am on Twitter anymore because it's, it's not just that it's this toxic place where you can't really get any value out of it. It's that at this point, every time I say anything, like it could be innocuous. I just have anti-Semitic, anti-everything, you know, pro-Second Amendment, whatever stuff coming, not pro-Second Amendment, just anti-anybody who believes in anything reasonable, death threats, all that kind of stuff coming at me. And other than a few occasions in the past, I mean, nothing like what Giuliani did. I have not really had somebody level, you know, just like turn the sort of nuclear battery of MAGA criticism and just zero it in exclusively on me the way these two women have. And so it is an enormous judgment of which they are very deserving because that has got to be a, a horribly traumatic experience, especially going from anonymity. You know, it, you could argue that somebody like me or you is already engaged in this world. I mean, they were just, they're just trying to serve their community, you know? Um, so it shouldn't be lost. Yeah. There was a, there was a little discussed cause there's so much news right now story that also dropped this week about Giuliani, that there was a raid, a federal raid in 2021 on Giuliani's home and office spurred by suspicions that Giuliani sought the removal of the U S ambassador to Ukraine partly because of the prospect of a financial award from a Ukrainian official. Now, I don't even begin to know whether where those were credible suspicions or not, but this just is just it's hard to hard to keep up with all of this. Um but shall we or were we saying? can I just say the, the the best way to think about Giuliani, I think, is somebody described it as like, you know, he came onto the radar, and maybe you were telling me this, that he came onto the radar this take. Uh, we all think of him as coming onto the radar as, you know, the U.S. attorney who went after the mob. But but then since then, it appears he joined the mob, right? Yeah. The Trump world, <laughs> the Trump organized. And and so the one way to look at it, the way most Americans would typically look at Giuliani is to say, wow, this guy really changed, right? But then the other way to look at it is this guy was always about advancing himself to a position of power, right? So when the best way to do that was to go after the mob and to put them in prison uh, and and use that to vault himself into a position of popularity where he could become mayor. That's that's one way to look at it. And then later, when organized crime via the Trump world was ascending to the White House, joining with them in order to gain the opportunity to be pardoned, gain the opportunity uh, to make a lot of money on things like what you just talked about. The point is, is that maybe it's not that inconsistent. Maybe from the beginning, Rudy Giuliani was just going to ride whatever train was going by, and it circumstantially involved organized crime on two different sides of the coin. But really, it was just Rudy Giuliani trying to get himself to positions of power and wealth. Yeah, it's really sad, honestly. Like it's there's there's no more popular figure where I grew up than Giuliani. Like he took on the mob, and the mob was very powerful where I grew up. You know, Sammy the Bull Gravano lived, you know, maybe a mile from where I grew up, and the uh and then the city as a whole like he even a lot of liberals will acknowledge that the city was ungovernable in the 80s and early 90s and 
Giuliani did a lot of controversial things that I think, especially given his new persona, people have gone back over. And I think I have some really interesting things to say about it. But he was wildly popular where I grew up at the time. Like when he used to come through for the 4th of July parades and stuff like that, he was more popular than the governor. He'd be more popular than the president if the president came. Just crazy to see. Uh, but People forget that Rudy Giuliani, we'll get off this in a second, but Rudy Giuliani was so popular that Michael Bloomberg, in order to accept, be able to accept his endorsement, who was an independent, he, the only reason he became a Republican for a while was so that Rudy Giuliani, politically, who wanted to run for president, could endorse him. You know, and now people are like, oh, wow, it's weird. You know, Bloomberg was like a Republican, then he became an independent, then he became a Democrat. No, Bloomberg was like an independent or a Democrat who just became a Republican in name only so that Rudy Giuliani politically could endorse him for mayor, you know, however many years ago that was. That's how popular that dude was. And he threw it all away on this fever dream. So, all right, that's depressing. Let's move to something else. Uh, yeah. So, even, even more depressing. Yeah. Why, why don't you set us up on this one? Uh, okay. The uh, yes, so Trump has we've Trump's got this, been giving some speeches, huh? Yeah, we've got we've we've got this aptly named in our outline as Trump rhetoric and GOP weirdos. Um, so why don't we just start with uh, this supercut um, that our our amazing producers have created of Trump's comments lately, and then we'll talk about them. The only reason I corrected is I'll say he didn't know his name. He didn't know his name. He must be cognitive. Y'all. Don't forget, I do most of this stuff without teleprompters. They do. Biden. Drill, drill. It's crazy what's going on. They're ruining our country. And it's true. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. They said, oh, Hitler said that in a much different way. No, they're coming from all over the world. People all over the world. We have no idea. They could be healthy. They could be very unhealthy. They could bring in disease that's going to catch on in our country. But they do bring in crime. But they have them coming from all over the world. And I heard somebody today say, uh, one of these genius analysts, the stock market's good. The rich get richer. But the stock market's good because they think Trump is going to win the election. And I believe that's true. And whatever good they have right now is the fumes of what we left them. It's coming off the fumes of what we've left them. But the stock market is good because a lot of people think we're going to win the election. So that's an interesting, uh, an interesting fact. I felt that, but I didn't want to say it. But I think we will say it. Well, the stock market is making rich people richer. Ben, and, and I mean, it's crazy what's going on. Rich people are getting richer. Of course, I'm a politician now, so we just keep chugging along, right? But it's making, but you're going to have a crash the likes of which you haven't seen because of what they're doing. It's going to be scary. What did that last line mean, by the way? We'll get into all of it. But does he mean like, I'm not rich anymore? Or I, I didn't even, it's so stream of conscious. It's, it, it, it's hard to, to track. Um, which part of that do you want to start with? Uh, I, well, let me say, I'll start. Uh, well, there's start an interesting part. part of it. Okay, yeah, yeah you go. go. There's actually something that we have to take seriously, which is this argument because what what is the best case scenario for Biden to turn the numbers around? It is that the people begin to internalize the widespread positive economic news. And it's always hard to talk about like general positive economic news because then you hear from people who say, well, my reality isn't good. Well, that's always going to be true, no matter what the economy looks like. But we've been through these numbers before. The economy is doing quite well. It's possible, very possible. A lot of economists are saying that we are we've actually achieved a soft landing. Some people say it might be a layover. There might be another flight needed, and we may have to do another soft landing. But either way, things are more positive than people thought they could, they would have been at this point. More positive than any other comparable country. And Trump is laying out his blueprint for how to to uh, to achieve a counter narrative, which is that everything happening is either because of fumes of what has happened before, or because of an expectation that Trump is going to be president again. Um, mm-hmm. And we just need that is the part that we need to take seriously. There's a lot in here that I think is nonsense, I, but I think that argument is an argument that I could see people around the you know kitchen table buying honestly. And so we mm-hmm. need to we need to go after that. It says to me that I, look, I think everything Trump says and does for his. Uh, out of it as he seems to be, I think it's inspired by something he's worried about. And it says to me that in the, they've spent 
so much money on polling. I mean, both sides do, but they spend a ton of money on polling uh, that he's seeing stuff that says that people do feel like the economy is getting better. Um, that doesn't mean that the majority of people feel like you know the economy is where they want or that the country is heading in the right direction, but he's seeing something that worries him. And so he is starting to get try to get ahead of that. Um, also, I think his ego is involved, right? He sees that the economy is so good. His wealthy donor friends uh, talk to him about the economy being good and the stock market being good, and he has to have a rationale for that. Um, but I think you're right. I think that has to be taken seriously and countered uh, in our conversations with people. Now, the other part about this uh, that, uh, like, look, it's really interesting to me, the Mein Kampf stuff, and he's very defensive about it um, because nobody thinks of Trump as a reader, right? Like, this is, like, I, I think even his greatest fans don't think like Trump is reading all these books. Can I, right? can I, can I push um, you on something though? Is he that defensive sure. about it? He he's he's like uh, oh they say is it purposeful. Yeah, he he it certainly isn't the reaction you would expect if he truly was that concerned about the comparison. Yeah, you wouldn't bring it up again, right? Yeah, he's he's almost yeah. implanting the impression. He's being like, "Oh, it's yeah. not that," but he almost seems gleeful that people are even comparing him. I think he admires Hitler, honestly. Uh, that's what I was going to say is that oh, I actually think he, <laughs> no, 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 I agree. I agree. But I think your point is a good one that he's bringing it up on purpose, um, which I hadn't really thought about that. He's bringing it up on purpose, not defensively. And it's, and that it all originated with the fact that he, he, whether, you know, look, would I go so far as to say that he admires Hitler for killing 6 million Jews? No, I think even Trump probably doesn't admire him for that. Exactly. I would not at all put it past the guy who admires people, uh, like she and like, Kim Jong-un, um, for what strong, quote unquote, strong leaders there and Putin. I absolutely think that Trump has always <clears throat> looked at a guy like Hitler and been like, oh, wow, he really accomplished a lot. And, and look, yes. honestly, have, have we, have we never had these kind of conversations? I mean, like, look, most of the people listening to this, and I bet you and I both have had conversations with people that have made us very uncomfortable where they have said something along the lines of, well, it is pretty amazing what he accomplished. And sometimes they were talking about Hitler. Sometimes they're talking about Putin. And you're like, that's not a that's not a legitimate reaction. But I guarantee you that Donald Trump really did, as as was the case, as what one of his ex-wives said, he had you know a collection of speeches, a book that was a collection of Hitler's speeches that he used to read at night. And Trump, many, many years ago, before he was in politics, was asked about this. And this is one of my favorite, really dumb Trump reactions, where his reaction to it was, he said, well, no, it was, uh, yes, it was, but it was given to me. Actually, he said it was Mein Kampf. And he said it was okay because it was given to him um, by a friend of his named Marty Davis. He said, who is Jewish? And then as I was reading this old article, it then said that they reached out to Marty Davis for comment. And Marty Davis confirmed that he gave him the book and that he is, in fact, Trump's friend but corrected him and said, he's not Jewish. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. But <laughs> the point is, yes, I absolutely think that this is a guy who thought, well, you know, he was a great orator and he, uh, he did get a lot done. And, and this brings me to the point of why I wanted to bring this up, which is the Biden campaign has responded to all this and has started saying that Trump is sounding like Hitler and that, and you know, the, the poisoning the blood of our nation, that that's right out of, of Mein Kampf. And it just wasn't that long ago, Ravi, that I was being advised by anybody and everybody who advised me rightfully to not, not compare anyone to the Nazis. And that if I ever wanted to just compare them to fascists. Um, but I just think, I, I think now it makes sense. Like, is it, it's not a third rail to compare this to because it's it's what else would you compare it to? Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure whether this line of argument against Trump is going to be our best one, but the more he veers into this territory, the more convinced I will be that it's worth bringing up. You know, it's like because because this is not just about the election; this is about planning for the worst case scenario and you mm -hmm. and i have talked a lot about the lessons learned from world war ii and and other catastrophes like that and you know it's on the table that we're staring down a very real possibility of something really dark and scary and this 
I don't, I don't want to like breeze past moments like this because he's telling us exactly what he wants to do. It's, it's important, I think, though, to keep this in mind as we talk about mainstreaming the argument against him that he sounds like the Nazis. And that is that you and I are in our early 40s. You're 40. I'm 42. And that means we and everybody who's still alive, who's older than us, don't necessarily remember the Holocaust. We weren't old enough, but we learned an awful lot about it in school, right? I mean, it was like, uh, I just can't even begin to explain, like for those who are listening who are younger, um, that you, especially as a Jew, I, I don't even think as a Jew, I think everybody, because it was the animating event of the previous century, because it, it was a major part of World War II, we know a lot about the Holocaust. And we're very aware that it's like the worst thing that has ever happened uh, in human history. It's the worst, it's, it's the worst uh, crime against humanity ever, which is why nobody, you don't meet anybody named Adolf and nobody wears the, a mustache like that. And you don't do those kinds of things. <laughs> but I'm increasingly seeing polling and uh, surveys and that kind of thing that show that people under 30 are far less familiar with the actual details of the Holocaust because they didn't grow up watching, you know, movies about World War II. They didn't, you know, they're, you know, if you're under 30, your grandparents didn't serve in World War II, most likely, and your parents didn't either. And so uh, the, my point is just that we shouldn't, we should not be afraid of mainstreaming this criticism, and we shouldn't overestimate the salience of this criticism with people who can't really connect to that. But at the same time, it is a very powerful criticism uh, for persuadable voters in the suburbs who are in that crucial demographic of being in their in their 40s and older because there is i believe a a a mental a correct mental limit like a governor uh on the on the accelerator that would allow you to go so far as to vote for somebody who is being compared to the nazis and that could be persuadable but we should not overestimate how persuadable it is for people who are younger mm. Well, should we uh, take a complete 180 and talk about Ted Cruz? Yeah, let's talk about Ted Cruz. I don't even think we should. I don't want to intro this clip at all. Let's just play this and then talk about it. Left is so bad. They're so unhappy. They're so pissed off. And by the way, if you were a liberal woman and you had to sleep with those weenies, you'd be pissed too. Man, you just don't get better making a fool of themselves clips than when you get Republicans who go to speak at Talking Points USA, which is uh, ostensibly the sort of young people group, uh, you know, for the Republicans, because they really they, they all want the young Republicans to like them and they just they push it. So, Ravi, um, apparently Ted Cruz thinks that liberal women are A, angry, and B, angry because uh, guys like you and I were just not good, not good in, in the sack. And um, what I have to say to this is that he must be right. Because when I look at Ted Cruz, I disagree with Ted Cruz. I find Ted Cruz reprehensible. But one thing I cannot deny is that you look at that man and you think he is inarguably evidently good at sex. Like that guy, there's just no question. Ted Cruz knows what he's doing and, and he should be the authority. And I just can't imagine that somebody who hasn't worked out in a quarter century uh, is uh, anything but fantastic uh, in bed. So I just I I you, feel like we should totally it, surrender here. I love you call it good at sex. <laughs> yeah, because I think it's funnier. <laughs> Because I think it's I think it's how Ted Cruz would phrase it. I'm uh, trying to get on his level. I'm trying to get on the level of the guy who went to Indiana and referred to a basketball hoop as a ring in the 2016 primary. Uh, so it is, you know, I mean, I, 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 there's so much to say, but Trump called his wife ugly, called Cruz's wife ugly, and he, Cruz still kissed the ring, and he's calling liberals weenies. It's just. It's amazing. Um, why okay. is he shouting? By the way, what is going on in that clip? Because I think that's the energy in that room, man. I think you. I think that's what it's like. Now we've made fun of this. We've clowned it a lot. 
I, I, what I don't want to do is I don't want to not take seriously this ongoing creeping strategy that we have talked about a lot that I think is quarterbacked mostly by Josh Hawley when we go to when we think about like mainstream Republican politicians uh, and a lot of influencers, you know, everybody from Ben Shapiro to a bunch of other people that Jordan Peterson fella, um, you know, that there's this real, real concerted effort to do something that has been out there for a long time. But to really mainstream it now, to to make the Democratic Party the mommy party and the Republican Party the daddy party, and to say that Republicanism is synonymous with masculinity, and uh, anything else is synonymous with what they'll call beta or whatever, um, and just basically not being a real man. And they do this for two reasons. One, they want to um, have complete... Uh, control over the white male part of the electorate, which they have a very strong hold on, but they also would like to eat into just the general male part of the electorate, you know, black men, uh, Hispanic men, I mean, you know, men of color generally. Um, but then there's also um, a, a crowd, um, particularly in the Midwest and the South, I think, uh, and in the West to some extent, but just mostly in the suburbs of, of women who that's sort of their politics. Now, a lot of that may be because of uh, how they were raised or um, who they're married to and that kind of thing. Um, but th there is a segment of the female voter population that they can get with that frame. And that's just basically voters who are, are more prone toward accepting authoritarianism because they think it's synonymous with, with safety, right? The idea that um, we want leaders who will protect and and the way they protect is they have to be mean and they have and they they cannot be thoughtful um, they've just got to be brutish and and so we shouldn't uh, paper over that and just laugh at Ted Cruz or we can laugh at Ted Cruz but there is a point to why they're doing this and and it is something that needs to be countered with our own version of masculinity and um, well let's take a break Jason and when we come back we're going to talk about the GOP primary uh, there's a lot going on here and especially a lot of activity in New Hampshire. And so we'll, we'll take stock of sort of the rest of the, the field other than Trump, see who's rising, see who's falling. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that when we get back from this ad break. If you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you know I've been drinking AG1 long before we partnered for this podcast, and I drink it first thing in the morning every day, and it's my foundational nutritional supplement. And what I love about it is that it does so many different things. It supports my body's gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, and they continuously refine their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. And this, you know, this AG1 does so many things for me in my life. It not only replaced my multivitamin, but um, every scoop also includes prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes for gut support, magnesium, B vitamins for energy support and adaptogens to balance my body's stress levels and vitamin G and zinc to help support my immune health. And I recommend AG1 to all my family and friends. I recommended it to Jason before this podcast and he got super into it um, and takes it every day himself. And, you know, even a lot of my family members have started taking it. So, so if you want to take ownership over your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority to check it out. Majority 54 is sponsored by BetterHelp. This is the holiday season. It's the gift-giving season. And what's you know, this can be a period of time where the expectations are really high. And so that can mean that there's a lot of pressure at work to get everything done before the holidays or be, you know, before the end of your fiscal year for a lot of people. But it also means that you're going to be spending more time with family, which means that you could be unearthing some baggage. It also means that you might be exchanging gifts. And all of that makes me think about better help because this is a convenient way to get help, whether it's just somebody to talk to, it's a licensed therapist. And I know for a lot of our audience, you're out there and sometimes you're in small towns, sometimes you're in the suburbs, or sometimes you might just, you know, be traveling a lot or don't want to walk into an office or you just want a diversity of options. And that's what I love about BetterHelp. It's a super convenient way to find somebody to talk to, to find therapy, 
Um, and it really takes advantage of the wonders of technology to make sure that you can find the right person to talk to at the right time. And there's no more important time than right now during the holidays. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You could just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you could switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So in the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash M54 to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. All right, Jason. Well, let's check in on where we are in the States. So Emerson had a poll today or yesterday that came out about Iowa, which is roughly in line with the polls that we've seen recently. It has Trump at 50%, DeSantis at 15 Haley at 17 Ramaswamy 8 So Haley and DeSantis neck and neck for second, but far behind Trump. But where things get interesting is New Hampshire, where a poll just came out uh, by CBS that is Trump leading Haley 44 to 29% with DeSantis at 11 and Christie at 10. And what's really fascinating is, so if you think about the 29 that Haley has right now, but with Christie at 10, 75% of Christie's supporters said they're also considering Haley. Uh, so if Christie were to drop out and endorse Haley, or if voters you know, came to the conclusion that Haley is the best non-Trump alternative and those that 10% gravitated to Haley in some significant numbers, you'd start to see a path for her in New Hampshire. And as we've talked about before, that would set up a big showdown in Haley's home state of South Carolina. Trump is sensing this and running ads against her, attacking her for, I think, supporting a gas tax when she was governor of South Carolina. It's a very old school tax ad. Jason, do you have any expectation that this is going to be anything other than Trump romping the field in these early states? I think Trump is going to romp the field in the early states, but I think it, New Hampshire may be very interesting. Um, there's a few really interesting things to me in these numbers. And then I do want to talk about this gas tax ad for a second. So the, these numbers, one that really stood out to me is that they have Haley, even with Trump, uh, within a point of Trump on the question of whether they are prepared for the presidency. The reason that is interesting to me is because this is a poll where Trump is leading Haley, uh, you know, not by a ridiculous amount, but, you know, he's got like 15 points on her. And she is even with Trump on being prepared for the presidency. The reason I think that's a big deal is because he used to be president. <laughs> and, and so I just can't get over the fact that they're like... He is only as prepared as she is, and he was the president, like really recently, um, which means nobody really thinks he's that prepared to do anything. They just like who he's, who he goes after. Um, I also uh, feel like these poll numbers really reveal how hard it is for people like you and me and the people listening to, to this show or watching the show right now, how hard it is for us to put ourselves in the minds of these caucus goers or these Republican primary voters. Because for instance, one in three of them describe Vivek Ramaswamy as likable, uh, which I just, I, for all, there's all sorts of conclusions you can reach about Vivek Ramaswamy. It just seems like likable is, is hard to get to. And then finally, the, the reason that I think that it's so hard for us to access their way of thinking is that on the question of, of who would be the best to, to defeat Biden, their answers are exactly the opposite of where we would be, right? Because they've got, I mean, I think you and I would agree, the candidate that they could put up that would be the most likely to beat Biden would be uh, Chris Christie. And when they're asked the question of what percent, you know, who do you think definitely could beat Biden. The last one, the one they're least likely to come up with is Chris Christie. I think you and I, and most of the people listening would agree that the, the person that Biden is most likely to beat is Trump. And by a huge margin, that's the person that they are most likely to think uh, will definitely beat Biden, which means it gets much harder for Nikki Haley to make uh, an electability argument when the majority of the voters think that Trump is the one who is the most likely to beat Biden when we feel very much the opposite, right? Like we're constantly having this conversation about, well, Trump is the easiest to beat, but but morally, shouldn't we still do everything to keep him from 
being the candidate. Like we talked two weeks ago about whether it is right or wrong for Democrats to pull Republican ballots uh, to vote in the Republican primary to vote against Trump, because we're all assuming that he is the best chance for us to beat, but also there's the chance of him becoming president. Now, I want to talk about this gas tax thing for a second. Uh, This is like, to me, the perfect example of why people who are talented uh, and maybe could do a good job running for office are really hesitant to want to go back and run for office or to want to run for office in the first place. So Nikki Haley is getting hit for supporting a tax increase as the governor of South Carolina. Um, Now, she opposed, I looked into this, she opposed a gas tax increase when she was running for governor. And then she later proposed a deal in which the gas tax in South Carolina would go up 10% in exchange for cutting the income tax from 7% to 5%. So that is cutting a progressive tax, an income tax, in favor of raising a regressive tax, a tax that's going to affect everybody equally. So basically, something she's proposing something Democrats would not like, but most Republicans would. Meanwhile, at the federal level, Haley right now is campaigning and she's talking about eliminating the gas and the diesel tax, which anybody who cares about climate would oppose. So again, she's campaigning on something that we as Democrats would probably be against and the Republicans would be for. While Trump, much more recently, while he was president, proposed raising the national gas tax by 25%. So he is running an ad saying she is a tax and spend politician because she proposed switching the gas tax out in South Carolina a dozen years ago for a different a different tax while he like just a couple of years ago proposed for the whole country raising the gas tax by 25 cents and this is why like it's so hard to imagine for me personally like getting back in and running because it just seems like what you do what you did it just doesn't seem to matter anymore and it is very frustrating it was a puzzling choice. I was trying to make sense of it because it's New Hampshire, I guess. It's the most libertarian, I think, of the Republicans. And they hate their taxes. Farmers. Yeah. The Republicans do. Yeah, but I don't know. But but I think at least here here's what I see. The path remains the same for Haley to stay viable, which is overperform in Iowa. I think she really needs that second place. And she's not going to beat Trump, it looks like, in those numbers. But if she has a respectable second, she can knock DeSantis out of the race. Ideally for her, Christie drops out before New Hampshire, or it's very clear he's not viable. She gets a bunch of that support. If she can beat Trump in New Hampshire, then that showdown in South Carolina is really important. I think if Trump mm-hmm. beats her in her home state, I think that's it. If she can beat him... Then she'll need a bunch of other things to go her way, but she'll be alive in probably a two-person field at that point. No matter who decides to stay in, it'll be her versus Trump, and a, and a and a head-to-head is the best-case scenario for her. And I think it's feasible, but it brings me to a recent decision that she made that I think we can learn something from, which is uh, she was asked the other day whether she thought Trump was fit to be president, and she sort of dodged the question by saying uh, that he shouldn't be president again. But that he, or that he, you know, he shouldn't be the nominee, he shouldn't be president again, but that he was the right person at the right time, that he was fit then. To which Chris Christie, you know, came after her on that and, and criticized her and said, like, look, he was never fit. If you ever think that he was, you know, the right person to be president, then you're just, it's disqualifying. But here's why I think it's interesting is because what, Haley is doing there. Some people think, oh, she's trying to get a chance to be his vice president. I don't think that's what it is. I think that what she's doing is she is recognizing that the people she has to persuade are people who voted for him twice. And that if you say to them that he was the wrong person to be president and he never should have been president, first of all, you look ridiculous because you accepted uh, an appointment from him as the UN ambassador. But second, people dig in. When you tell them that they did something wrong, they're a lot less likely to listen to you the rest of the way. But when you tell them that they were not wrong, but that something changed and it's not their fault, they're more likely to hear you. Now, I'm not saying that it is right or moral or anything like that for Nikki Haley to be out there saying that Trump was the right president at the right time. But from an argumentative strategy, tactical point of view, when we're trying to persuade someone who has voted for Trump, which a lot of people listening to this show are always trying to do, it is important to remember that if you tell them they were wrong and if you focus on the past, it is a lot harder to get them to come around to what you want them to do in the future. And I think that that is a lesson worth learning. 
it reminds me of some of the pandemic politics where I think some of the vaccine opponents, mask opponents, lockdown opponents, et cetera, I think we're we're trying to fight a holy war and constantly we're trying to get people who are more aggressive on those measures to admit that they were wrong. And I think it's just a foolish endeavor. I think what they should have spent more time focusing on was the changing nature of the facts and what we learned. Because I actually think it was a much more flattering story to the people who opposed a lot of those measures. And it's also psychologically much more effective to be like, look, we're not saying that you weren't right to be cautious at the beginning, but now we've learned a lot. But I think a lot of those folks, even till this day, want people to you know, confess their sins. And it's just mm-hmm. not how it works. You know, By yeah. and large, that's not an effective strategy. Uh, it's, you're not going to get it done. And second, I know even if you do, it's satisfying, it's gratifying, but it doesn't actually produce anything. Now, we were going to talk about DeSantis, but I think we're, you know, we're a little late on time. And frankly, DeSantis is running out of time anyway, so yeah. I don't really think we need to, we need to get into him. Um, so with that, uh, let's do, we're going to do grab an oar real quick. Um, my grab an oar is about uh, asking people to get involved uh, in supporting Lucas Kuntz, the Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in Missouri against Josh Hawley. Uh, and uh, I went on, I, I announced this endorsement last week. This was me um, a week ago Sunday uh, on MSNBC. So let me just throw to a clip of me, which is a weird thing to do, but let's do it. Look, he's just far and above uh, a better candidate, uh, regardless of party, uh, for the job of being the senator from Missouri than, than Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley is what we like to call in Missouri a tool. Uh, look, I mean, this is a this is a race between a guy, Josh Hawley, who literally popped popcorn to enthusiastically watch the invasion of Iraq. And then later, when he got into politics, claimed that he opposed the war in Iraq. Like, this is witness accounts from people who went to school with him uh, have pointed this out. And then you have Lucas Kuntz, who you know joined the Marine Corps, has served in Iraq, served in Afghanistan and stands for all the things uh, that myself and a lot of the people watching stand for, where Josh Hawley stands for Josh Hawley. So I wanted to talk about this one because I want people to go to Lucas's website. His name is Lucas Kuntz, K-U-N-C-E, learn more about him. But also, I just think what happened next is funny. I spent a lot of time in that interview basically laying out the fact that the Democratic Party should and I think is going to nationally invest in Missouri for this race. And then we can go ahead and put up the graphic if you have it of, uh, of the tweet that I had, the thread I had uh, about this. So that was on Sunday that I said this. I called Josh Hawley a tool and I, uh, and I went uh, and then I, I said, hey, Democrats are going to be serious about this race. Then on, uh, on Tuesday, uh, Donald Trump said, that he is hearing that uh, Democrats are going to uh, invest in these races, like in um, in Missouri, uh, and that j- people like Josh Hawley should be very careful. Like he basically threatened Josh Hawley, who hadn't endorsed him yet. That was on Tuesday. Trump said publicly, "It's very interesting that Dems are targeting Hawley, and that Josh ought to be very careful." Right after I went on TV and said we're targeting Hawley, then not 24 hours later on Wednesday, Hawley panicked and he endorsed Trump. And I bring this up because I think in doing so, he proved that I was right on Sunday when I said that he was a tool. <laughs> and and uh, my grab is just that people should look to, to get involved um, with Holly. But uh, as we move to uh, to one for us, you want to talk again about, about Squadra? Yes. Real quick? Well, um, you know, I, I announced last week that we, you know, this fitness policy that you've been a part of for the past few years, we've you know, we've kind of leveled it up and are accepting people into a beta test of this. And this is a, a fitness uh, program and community that will, that lines up perfectly with people's New Year's resolution. So it's, you know, you join a team and you track healthy habits and workouts together and you compete against other teams to be as healthy as you can be. It's kind of like a color wars for your health and wellness. And we've had a huge surge of, surge of interest. And so people are interested in it, you can go to joinsquadra.com and uh, probably in the next few days, we'll probably lock up our teams for next year. So if you are interested, go to joinsquadra.com, fill out an application. It takes no time whatsoever. There's a ton of information there about what it entails and all of that. And uh, if you uh, join up, you will be a part of a team heading into the new year so that you don't have to tackle your new year's resolutions and get healthy all on your own. You could do it with a team and a group of people. Uh, and I'm super pumped about it. I spent yesterday building what were like 
calling the biomarkers part of it, which is like people can track all sorts of stuff about their health. And what happens is you'll put something into the system like, oh, here's my VO2 max or something. And it'll tell you what your percentile is relative to your age and your background. Say you're in the 20th percentile and this equates to this for your health or whatever. So it's going to be really adaptive and really cool. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to to launch that. Well- uh, I will fully recommend it because the very, very beta version, you know, that you were doing before you had like, it, you know, a website for it or anything was huge for me, huge for Diana. Um, so I think people should definitely join. Um, one thing I'm going to go back for a second, because another part of Grab an Or is last week I asked people to go to my website, then go to jasoncander.com and go to the contact form and let us know about people who they think are doing a great job of using their platform uh, for, you know, for progress and to, to improve people's lives. And I got a bunch of emails and, and I wanted to pick one out uh, that I really liked and read it. Um, and uh, this is from uh, Mike Kaplan in Boston. He said, hi, Jason, thanks for all you do. I'd like to nominate my friend Mike Connolly as someone who should be recognized for the good work they've done this year. Mike had the good fortune of being able to retire relatively young. And with his newfound time, he started a completely free career advice network, Pay Forward Coaching. And he said, full disclosure, I'm a volunteer. He said, career, resume, interview advice, is often quite expensive and is needed at a time where people are usually in a rough financial position. And since this started last year, uh, Pay Forward Coaching, which is what it's called, has conducted over 1,000 completely free one-on-one professional coaching sessions that have helped people receive job offers, negotiate higher salaries, improve their resume, or just be an ear while they navigate through career transitions. There's no catch to the service, no upsell, just people who have been fortunate trying to help others. And he said, here's a link if you want to check it out. Um, he said, there hasn't been much press on it yet, but maybe you can change that. So it's payforwardcoaching.com. And uh, I mentioned it because maybe somebody listening wants to use it. Uh, and also because, you know, uh, thank you um, to Mike Kaplan for bringing up what Mike Connolly started and what Mike is involved with. That sounds very cool. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that, that we want to promote. So, uh, all right. Uh, last thing is, Ravi did a powerlifting competition and he, uh, you, you deadlifted 510 pounds and you benched 275. And that's, I don't know, that's impressive. And I feel like we should say that here. Well, the biggest win was losing nine pounds in the process of it all. I think like the, in like a very short period, short period of time. I think, uh, people will listen to that and be like, that's crazy and unhealthy. And you wouldn't be wrong. I had a lot of friends who were like ready to take me out for multiple cheat meals after this. And I, and I obliged, but the, I'm like a freak. People who listen to this, I like to test limits of stuff. And that was certainly the largest weight loss I've ever done at any period of time, remotely as short as that. And I coupled it with having to increase strength at the same time. And the fact that I hit a PR in deadlifting, which was the second largest deadlift. I mean, it was a, I didn't win the competition. There were like actual professional powerlifters, but I did have the second heaviest deadlift, which I was very proud of. I was particularly proud of the fact that I was somehow losing weight, but building muscle, mm-hmm. which is a formula. So I, I was thinking about that. I'm like, wow, this is like a pretty interesting learning experience. Now, there's a lot of things I will not take with me after that, like not drinking water the day before so I can make the weight, uh, which created a really you- weird dynamic. So I like I waited yeah. in a couple hours before the competition and immediately chugged a bunch of Gatorades and went to McDonald's and ate two Egg McMuffins. Uh, before the competition, but that honestly, that's fun. Like guilt-free eating egg McMuffins, that's that's priceless in and of itself. So it's a fun day. And then the Bills crushed uh, the Cowboys while I was eating my cheat meal. It's wonderful. I saw that. I saw yeah. that the Bills are starting to look a little bit like the Bills, which is impressive. Yeah. Still may um, not make the playoffs, but you know we're, we're looking good. They got you at least watching again. So that's exciting. Yes. Um, well, uh, all right. I think that that's enough for this week. Good job. Another <laughs> another good one. Um, uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Um, if you want to see more about this uh, powerlifting that Ravi did, you can go to uh, at Ravi M. Gupta on uh, Instagram. And that's also him across social media. Um, I'm at Jason Kander across social media. Uh, that's it. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Thank you.